In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Well, the holidays, I think, are sometimes a time of, uh, of reflection for uh, people. Uh, sometimes people make resolutions. Some of those are more serious and honest than others. Uh, or maybe it's just that um, we get to be around family and friends that we, we don't get to see as often. And um, that makes us aware I think especially as we get older, of just how precious those times really are. Uh, Anyway, with all of that, it got me thinking uh, over the holidays about, you know, sort of what really matters, and hence uh, the title of our five-week series that we're beginning today. So what I would like us to do over the next few weeks is I want us to think together about uh, making and living a life that matters. And I thought we could do that by looking through the lens of one of my favorite biblical characters, uh, Jacob. Um, You know, Jacob, Isaac, and Rebecca's boy, um, Esau's twin, uh, the grandson of Abraham and Sarah. And uh, we're going to focus on him uh, beginning especially next week. But what I want to do this morning is I just want to set the table uh, a little bit for that. So, um, like many of you, I live in two different worlds. On the one hand, I I live in the world of work and deadlines and eating meals and paying bills, um, what we sometimes call the real world. In that world, it's a world that honors people for a number of things, Um, attractiveness, um, productivity, Um, This world reveres uh, winners and it scorns losers. Loser is a big word in our society these days. Have you noticed? Um, A billboard at one of the Olympics a few years ago read, you don't win the silver medal, you lose the gold. And in most contests, every golf or tennis, tennis tournament, every football or basketball playoff, every band or a cappella competition, there are many more losers than there are winners. So most of the citizens of that world spend a good deal of their time worrying about whether they measure up. Fortunately, there is another world, however, which even before I entered it professionally, I spent a good deal of my time in. As a religious person, I also live in the world of faith, and so do you. We live in the world of the spirit, where heroes are actually models of compassion rather than competition. In this world, you win by sacrifice. You win by helping your neighbor and sharing with him rather than finding out what his weaknesses are and exploiting him. And, thankfully, in the world of the spirit, there are a lot more winners than there are losers. Now, truth be told, when I was younger, um, I lived almost exclusively in that first world, the world of climbing up the ladder, getting ahead. I relished competition 
For my youngest years, it was, what will we do to win the league competition? And then it was all about, where am I in the class rankings? Even as a clergy person, I was very sensitive to the questions people asked. The question is, how is your church doing? Was almost always followed by its nearest relative. You know what that question is? How many members do you have now? And I was very sensitive to that. It took me some time to realize that that is not the most important question. Churches are a little bit like dog shows. Um, in a dog show, the beagle is not judged by which one is closest in height to the Great Dane. The reality is there are faithful and unfaithful small churches, and there are faithful and unfaithful mega churches. But back then, how else could I find out how good I was, where I would be on the ladder of winners and losers? I was, in fact, just living out the insight of the great psychoanalyst Carl Jung. You remember he said, act one of a young man's life is the story of his setting out to conquer the world. And I lived that. Of course, I was not the only person doing that. Everyone around me was in the same boat. And when I was younger, I used to see this other world as a kind of vacation home a place that I would go to kind of rekindle my energies so that I could get back into the real world of striving and climbing. At times, it almost seemed like this other world was a mirror image of the first, where different people were valued for different things. For example, older people were actually respected for their wisdom and experience. And we talked about old ideas and old values. People were described as beautiful because they were generous and compassionate rather than wealthy and glamorous. Success had a very different ring to it. <clears throat> as my life became increasingly a story of giving up things and dealing with limitations, Two dislocated shoulders and a lousy jump shot meant giving up a college basketball dream. A very stiff right hip meant that I had to give up running. Some of you are familiar with this, the world of limitations. Anyway, I found myself more and more in that second world. I found myself returning to it more and more emotionally and spiritually. Abraham Heschel once said, when I was young, I admired clever people. As I grew older, I came to admire kind people. Carl Jung also said, act two is the story of a young man realizing the world is not about to be conquered by the likes of him. <laughs> Looking back, I now realize that I was really always commuting between these two worlds. And that was really to meet two very basic human needs. On the one hand, we all have a need to feel successful and important. On the other hand, I need to think of myself as a good person, a person who will be thought well of by other good people. On the one hand, we need to know that we matter, that the world takes us 
seriously. I was reading this memoir uh, by uh, a woman recently, and she was remembering a time when she was young where she was at home during the day, um, a school day. She was sick at home. And she heard the voices of everyone outside of the house. And she was dismayed to realize that the world was going on without her, not even really missing her. Now, this woman grew up and became a very religious person, one of the pillars of her church, in fact, um, very active in all kinds of organizations. But I remember thinking to myself, I wonder if, at least in part, she became such an activist and such an overachiever to overcome that childhood fear of insignificance, to reassure herself that she really mattered. I am now in my 40th year of ministry. I have been around a number of people who are in the last stages of their life. Some of those people were very old and had lived very satisfying lives. Some of those people were sick and in such pain um, that death really came um, as a form of release for them. But it seems to me that the people I have known who had the most trouble dealing with death were those who felt that they had really never done anything worthwhile with their lives. And if God could just give them one or two more years, maybe they would get it right. It wasn't death that they were frightened of. It was insignificance, the fear that they would never really leave their mark in the world. The need to feel important. It drives people to value so many things. It drives people, for example, to value titles. Kathy tells this wonderful story. Um, so this guy uh, just finished his dissertation and finally got his PhD in psychology. So the whole family was going to go out to dinner that night. And for the very first time, he made his reservation as Dr. So-and-so. So they're at the table, and the waitress finds out um, there's a new doctor. And so she says to him, what kind of doctor are you? And he tells her. And she says, oh, not a real doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you know that um, for the last few summers, I've preached one week up at this church in Omina, north of Traverse City, just one week. And uh, they invite 12 people to come up for one week and be there. And uh, so before they do this, they put out this wonderful piece that, you know, kind of lists all the visiting dignitaries that are going to be coming over the summer. Well, for the last three summers, I have been listed as the Reverend Dr. Peter Moore. I have never felt the need to correct that. It causes us to value titles and corner offices and first-class travel. I talked to a real doctor just last week who made a point of saying to me that there were these businesses that were flying him all over the world in first class. It causes us to feel excessively pleased when someone important recognizes us and to feel very hurt when 
say our doctor or a former teacher, passes us by without noticing us or calls us by our brother or sister's name. Ooh. The need to know that we are important, and it is not a bad thing, of course. It is what drives doctors and medical researchers to spend hours looking through microscopes in hopes of finding a cure. It is what drives inventors and entrepreneurs to stay up at night trying to find better ways of providing things that people need. It drives artists and writers and composers to agonize over just the right color or word or note. And it drives ordinary people like you and me to buy six copies of the newspaper because our name appeared in it. Because the truth is we find ourselves so often in places where we feel insignificant. The salesperson who doesn't know your name and makes it very clear that they could care less to ever know your name. People do amazing things to be considered uh, like they matter. For example, these people who appear on daytime television shows telling things about themselves and their families that most of us would never tell to even our closest friends. Um, they are pitiable, but for just an hour, they are the center of a million people's attention all across America. They matter. And yet, on the other hand, you and I have this need to feel that we are good people. Rabbi Harold Kushner, who wrote that bestseller, You Remember When Bad Things Happen to Good People. At one point, he wrote another book. It was called, How Good Do We Have to Be? <laughs> and sort of the operating premise was that um, God doesn't expect perfection from us, and so we shouldn't expect perfection of ourselves or others. That was sort of the main theme. God loves us in spite of our inevitable lapses. And so Kushner was traveling all over the country promoting his book. Um, and he said an interesting thing kept happening. He said, although most of the people in the audience welcomed his message, there were always some people in the audience uh, who were uncomfortable with it because they wanted to believe that God loves them and other people love them because they deserve it, not because God is just gracious and willing to put up with them. They wanted to believe that God cares about their choices, whether they are selfish or generous, whether they are honest or deceitful. They're sort of like the college student who spends a lot of time on a term paper and really wants the professor to read it because they worked so hard on it. And they might hope that God would make allowances for their human frailty, but like that college student, they would be very disappointed with the response, that's all right, I really didn't expect much from you anyway. And Kushner's response to that was very interesting. He said, God speaks to us in two voices. He said, one of those is the commanding voice from the mountaintop, thou shalt not. The voice that is always summoning us to reach higher, to demand greater things of ourselves, forbidding us the excuse, I'm only human. Because to be human is a wondrous thing. 
God's other voice, he said, is the voice of forgiveness, the voice of compassion, assuring us that when we have aimed high and fallen short, that we are still loved. It seems to me that any parent knows both of these voices. A grandparent can afford to spoil their grandchild rotten. A parent cannot afford to do that. Years ago, Eric Fromm wrote a little book. He called it The Art of Loving, in which he distinguished between what he called mother love and father love, though even back then, he was very clear that people of either gender can, are capable of both kinds of loving. Mother love says, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and I will always love you no matter what. Father love says, I will love you if you earn my love, if you get good grades, if you make the team, if you make a good salary. And Fromm insists that every one of us needs to experience both kinds of loving. Now, it may seem at first glance that mother's love is warm and freely given and father's love is harsh and conditional. But as Kushner's audience taught him, um, sometimes we also need to hear the father's love, that we are loved because we deserve it not just because God is gracious and forgiving. How many men and women have spent their entire lives feeling somehow incomplete or unsure of their worth because they never heard their father or mother say to them, you're good, you're a good man, you're a good woman, and I am proud of you. A colleague of mine went to call on a man in his congregation whose uh, father had recently died. The visitation and the funeral was out of town, um, so my colleague was the only one who came to visit him on the night that he came home. He said that after a few minutes of asking about the funeral and how is your mother doing, um, he found himself saying, you know, it sounds like your father was a man who really kept his emotions to himself. And with that, his parishioner broke down in tears. He never said anything good about me. All my life, I wanted to hear him say that he was proud of me for who I was and what I was doing. And all I ever got from him was the sense that he showed his love to me by putting up with me. He wiped his eyes, apologized for his tears, and went on. He said, in my head, I know that he had a problem talking about his feelings. In my heart, I have always felt cheated. I got good grades. I went to college. I made a good living. I live in a nice home. Would it have been so hard for him just once to tell me he was proud of me? And now he's dead, and I will never hear it. My colleague tried to tell him the problem was his father's and not his, that his father was part of a whole generation of men who didn't know what they were feeling, let alone express it in words. He reminded him that his father had grown up in the 30s during the Depression and probably had been forced by circumstances to grow a hard outer shell. 
But in the end, my colleague said, I'm not sure that it really helped. This man may be a permanent member of that army of men and women who will always feel a little bit incomplete because they never got the message that a father or mother was proud of them. And they will carry that until someone who they really care about convinces them of it. I bet you know somebody like that. Maybe you are that person. We are such complicated creatures, aren't we? We need to hear the message not only that we are forgiven, but that we are good. And that our hard work and our generosity and our ethical choices really matter. Which brings us finally to Jacob. <laughs> Thank God. This wonderfully complicated human being who you remember was born out of competition. So his name means supplanter or trickster because you remember in birth he actually grabbed his brother's heel so that he could get ahead of him. He deceived his own father so that he could get his father's blessing. However, along the way, his name was changed to Israel. He or she who wrestles with God. Because Jacob heard another voice. And he came to see himself and the world around him in a different, though never perfect, way. Through the lens of his life over these next couple of weeks, I hope that we will gain insight into these two voices of God, into these two deeply seated needs that we have, these two prizes for which every one of our souls yearn. Amen.